0: Well, if you have a Bible, Exodus chapter 14 is where we'll be today. We're walking through this book of Exodus, and we've seen how God's people, the Israelites, were slaves in Egypt, and God is rescuing them out. He's drawing them out of slavery so that he can draw them in to worship. And after 10 plagues, Pharaoh has finally relented and allowed the people to leave, And so they've left Egypt, but there's still one more event that has to happen for them to truly be free from the Egyptians. That's what we're going to see today. So Exodus chapter 14, if you don't have a Bible, it's on page 58 in the Bible in the seat there. You can follow along. Look at Exodus chapter 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, what have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. And that's a kind way to put it, I guess. So he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in each one. So Pharaoh realizes, what have we done? And he changes his mind and he begins to pursue the Israelites. He takes his best soldiers and begins to chase them down. And the Israelites have been following this cloud and this fire that represent God's presence. And so they've just been going where that stuff goes and that has led them to a sea. And now... They're staring at the sea. The Egyptians are coming and they're trapped. And so they look and they see the Egyptians and they probably caught word of this from a distance. They look and they see that this is happening and here's what they do. Verse 10, chapter 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians coming after them the Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. When they see the Egyptians coming, They're terrified. Now, this isn't really the stuff they were saying when they were in Egypt. And have they forgotten the plagues and what God did? They haven't forgotten. But what they know to be true here hasn't become true on the heart level yet. And so when they see the Egyptians, they're terrified. What is it that when you see it, it causes you to be afraid? What is it that when you see it, it causes you to be afraid? Is it political turmoil? Do you watch the events unfolding in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine, and do you think what in the world is going to happen? Do you look at a particular political party and either what their administration had done or what the current administration is doing? And when you see the political party and the actions that they've chosen to take, you feel afraid. Maybe it's not political turmoil that you see that causes you to be afraid. Maybe it's relational turmoil. Maybe you're a student or a kid in the room and you see your parents and the way that they talk to each other and they think that you don't know anything's going on, but you do. And when you see that, it causes you to be afraid. What's going to happen? Maybe this is how you feel about one of your kids, your son or your daughter. Maybe this is how you feel about one of your grandkids. And you've lived enough life to know that when you see the pattern that's happening, the destination is is not good. And so because of what you see, it causes you to be afraid. Maybe this is happening with one of your friends. Maybe it's not a relational turmoil. Maybe it's a health crisis. When you see the road that you're going to have to walk because of your diagnosis, you're afraid. Or when you see the road that a friend or family member is going to have to walk, It causes you to be afraid. Maybe it's a financial thing, that when you see your cash flow, you get afraid. When you see your debt, you get afraid. What is it that when you see it, it causes you to be afraid? When the Israelites saw the Egyptians, when they looked up, they realized we're trapped at the sea, they were terrified. This text is designed to help people have courage even when what they see terrifies them. How do you live with courage in the face of what you see? That's the question of this text. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the willingness to strap on fear and move forward. How do you find the courage to face what you see? That's what we're going to find out today. In Exodus 14, after the people have called out against Moses, here's what happens. Verse 13. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid, stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. So Moses gives this impassioned speech. Look, what you see today, you're not gonna see later. He's making word plays and he's firing them up. And then the Lord says to him, verse 15, why are you crying out? To me, Tell the Israelites to break camp. Now, why does the Lord speak to Moses and say, why are you crying out to me? Moses isn't crying out. Some people read this and say, well, Moses must have been crying out behind the scenes. All right, so in the face of the, of the people, he's like, hey, be confident. And then he's walking away and he's like, oh God, oh God, oh God, please, please. But I think something else is going on here. The Lord is addressing Moses and saying, why are you crying out to me? Because Moses is the mediator between God and the people. Moses is going to mediate. He's going to go between them. He's going to represent each party to one another. And as the mediator, he's identified with the people so that what they do God can just speak to Moses as if Moses is the one doing it. And to the people, Moses is identified with God so that what Moses does is as if God is the one doing it. He's the mediator. And so here's what God tells him to do. As for you, lift up your staff. This is verse 16. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As for me, I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army, his chariots, and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And remember, that has been the goal of the Exodus, is for people to know who the Lord is, for people to know his power, So God says, raise up your staff and the people are actually going to walk through the sea. Verse 19, then the angel of God who was going in front of the Israelite forces moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them. So remember there has been this cloud and fire in front of the people that's been leading them. Now the cloud is moving and is behind them. And the reason that that's happening is so that there can be a distinction made between the Israelites and the Egyptians. The cloud is going to separate them. Look at verse 20. It came between the Egyptian and Israelite forces. There was cloud and darkness. It lit up the night and neither group came near the other all night long. So the imagery here is that the Israelites have light throughout the night and the Egyptians are covered in darkness. What lights up the night for them is this darkness. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. So Moses lifts up his hand over this sea and it parts. Now there's like a couple million people here. So it's not an aisle like this, all right? It's like a wide aisle. It's big, And it's interesting, there's this little detail. It says, the Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night. And some people read that and think that that's like a scientific modern explanation of how this happened. Maybe there was a big wind storm and it divided the water. And I don't think that's what this detail is there for. This detail is important, but not so that we can come to understand how the sea was parted, but so we can understand what God is doing by parting the sea. And this little detail is meant, I think, to connect what God is doing through Moses for his people to what God did in creation and what God did with Noah and the flood. Um, Here's where we get that. And this is one of the ways that, um, that it works to read the Old Testament. Um, wind is mentioned in creation. In Genesis chapter one, verse two, it says that the spirit of God, same word for wind here, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, over the surface of the deep. So God's wind, his breath, his spirit was at work in creation. And in The book of Genesis, and remember Genesis is part one, Exodus is part two of a five-part series. In the book of Genesis, after God has flooded the earth and he saved Noah and Noah's family through the waters in an ark, here's how God makes it dry again. This is Genesis 8, verse one. God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. The point of including this detail is this. Moses is the new Noah. And what God is doing for his people is a new act of creation. That's the point. Moses is the new Noah and What he's doing for his people is a new act of creation. And this is not the first time that we've seen this in the book of Exodus. If you remember in Genesis, or I'm sorry, in Exodus chapter 2, do you remember that Moses was delivered through the waters of the Nile? How? In a basket. And if you remember, the word for basket is actually the word ark. So at the beginning of the Exodus story with Moses, he's being connected to Noah. And here at the end of his time in Egypt, he's also being connected to Noah. God is going to deliver his people through the waters, just as he did with Noah. And this act of salvation is a new act of creation. That's the point. So the Egyptians... Come in after the Israelites. Here's what happens. Verse 23. The Egyptians set out in pursuit all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. Verse 24. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. The Lord somehow confuses their army. He causes their chariots to get stuck and to not drive properly through this sea. And they begin to recognize, wait a minute. They made it through here with no difficulty. We're here and um, we should get out of here. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. Verse 27, so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And notice this detail, at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea the water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. Through the night, they walk through this sea. And at daybreak, the Israelites walk out the other side. Do you see the connection to creation? It's a new day now. Now we are in freedom. And in verse 28, do you notice this little phrase the water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen? This won't maybe seem significant, but that's the same word that's used in the book of Genesis to describe how the earth was covered by the waters. Again, this is an act of new creation and it's connecting Moses with Noah. Verse 29. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall on their right and their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians. Notice this, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant, Moses. God saved his people through the sea. And at the beginning of the their encounter with the sea, they're afraid of the Egyptians. By the end of their encounter at the sea, they see the Egyptians dead on the seashore and they now fear the Lord. How can this text help you have the courage to face what you can see. How can this text help you have the courage to face your fears? To move forward in spite of what you see? This event was never meant to be read as a singular event. Like this is something God did one time. Instead, as is true for all of the scripture, this is meant to be read theologically. And what that means is, It's supposed to tell us something about who God is and how God works. And so what is this text designed to teach us? Here's the summary statement, and then we'll break this down. I think that Exodus 14 and 15 are meant to teach us that the Lord will have victory over death and evil. The Lord will have victory over death and evil. And if you can see that truth, then you will be able to live with courage regardless of what else you see. So let me show you where I got this from the text. We're gonna break this down. First, we're gonna talk about how the Lord will have victory over death. Then we'll talk about how this shows us that he'll have victory over evil. First, he'll have victory over death. Where did we get that? Well, Egypt is presented in the first five books of the Bible as a symbolic place of death. So in the Old Testament, the word for the place of the dead, where someone goes when they die, the word is sheol, sheol, S-H-E-O-L. It's similar to uh, the Greek idea of Hades or the underworld. Okay, so when you die, you go down. And we still kind of use that terminology, don't we? we? We still kind of think about like death being down there. You go down. To die is to go down. And in the Old Testament, Sheol, this place where you go when you die, this downward place was also represented as a place of water and chaos and, and the sea. It was a watery place. And so in the book of Exodus... Egypt is being metaphorically or symbolically depicted as Sheol. It's the place of the dead. Let me show you where we get that. Um, In the first five books of the Bible, you always go down to Egypt. And that's not just geographical, that's theological, that's symbolic. Um, Listen to this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. In Genesis 37, the main character of the book of Genesis is, or the the protagonist, I should say, is this man named Joseph. Joseph gets sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And the caravan that they sell him to, it says, was going down to Egypt in Genesis 37. Then later, after they sell uh, this, their brother Joseph into slavery, they lie to their dad and say that he died by a wild animal. And when they go and tell their dad what's happened, he refuses to be comforted and here's what happens. Same chapter, Genesis 37, verse 35. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, listen to this. I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And his father wept for him. He's saying, I'm going to live the rest of my life mourning over my son. And the next time I see my son is going to be in Sheol, the place of the dead. But as it turns out, his son was not dead. The next time he sees him is actually going to be in Egypt. Egypt. And he's afraid to go to Egypt. And so here's what God tells him, Genesis 46, verse four. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you back. Joseph, his son, will close your eyes when you die. And then at the very end of the book of Genesis, like this is the last thing that happens in the book. Here's what Joseph says, Genesis chapter 50, verse 24 and 25. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph dies in Egypt the place of Sheol, and his bones get left there. Why? Because Egypt is like a place of death. But Joseph tells them, someday God's going to bring you up from here. And when that happens, take my bones with you. Why? Because I want to be in the land of the living. (laughs) The book of Hebrews says that he was looking forward to the resurrection. And so, Egypt is a place of death. And isn't it Interesting, that right before they cross the sea, in the verses that we had read today, it mentions that they took Joseph's bones with them. Why include that detail? Unless you're trying to show that as we get out of Egypt, our time in death is over. As we get out of Egypt... We will be born again. As we get out of Egypt, we will have new life. We are leaving the place of the dead. Egypt is symbolically representing death. This is also seen in, think about this. This is just, uh, this is how um, Hebrew authors just are brilliant geniuses, okay? Think about how their time in Egypt is bracketed by water. And water is a symbol of the the realm of the dead, All right? So in Exodus chapter one, what's happening? Boys are getting drowned in the Nile, this great river. In Exodus chapter 14, their last encounter with the Egyptians, the Egyptians are getting drowned in the sea. Do you see how The point is we're supposed to connect their time in Egypt. It's bracketed by waters on both sides, drowning on both sides. It's like Egypt represents the place of the dead. And culturally, this is also fitting. The Egyptians were the ancient experts on mummification So they're the ones who knew the most about death from a medical standpoint and the ones who knew most about death from a religious standpoint. And the place of mummies is the place God intends to bring his people out of. He's going to bring them out of the place of death. So this is sarcasm in Exodus chapter 14 when they are terrified and they say, Uh, 14 verse 11, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away out into the wilderness to die? No, the point is there are like lots and lots of graves. They celebrate graves in Egypt. They build graves, big ones, and they put all kinds of Fancy stuff in there. And they love death in Egypt. And was it because we didn't have any graves? Moses, did you lead us out here because you didn't know where we would go if we died in Egypt? And so, oh, there wasn't room for us there. No, there's plenty of graves. That's the point. The point is Egypt is associated with death. And so for God to bring them through the sea What are we supposed to learn about God and how he works? God's salvation is like taking people from death to life. God, when he saves, does not just transport you from one dangerous circumstance to a safer circumstance. He doesn't just take you from one situation and put you in a better situation. Instead, when God saves, he brings you from death to life. And that means that this event in Exodus chapter 14 is actually a foreshadowing of an even better Exodus that God will work for his people. And he will not just bring them through the sea, but he will bring them through the sea. Not just this sea, but the sea the symbolic representation of death. That's what God will bring them through. He will bring them through death. And this is why Jesus is a far greater mediator than Moses, the book of Hebrews says. Jesus can be so identified with humanity and so identified with God that he alone is qualified to be the mediator, the go-between. Why? Because he's truly man and truly God. And Jesus, the mediator is cast into the sea, drowned in the depths of the sea by being nailed to a cross. And he walks through the sea anyway on dry ground by being raised from the dead. And he says, if you belong to me, this is your future too. If you belong to me, you will cross through the sea on dry ground. You will be raised from the dead. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian is not just to be someone who's trying harder now. To be a a real Christian is to be someone who has been brought from death to life. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Salvation is is an act of new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We have been made alive together with Christ. And when he returns, we will be resurrected just as he is resurrected. Going down to Egypt is like going down into the underworld. Being in Egypt is like being in the tomb. And God's salvation, even in Exodus, is a resurrection. So, what implications does this have? First, God gives us a picture of this that we're to remember. In the first service today, we had someone baptized who's from the Ukraine. And baptism is a picture of this truth, that God brings people through the sea. He brings people through death. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes, Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters. Now, this will give you something to think about in the shower or wherever you do your best thinking that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, referring to this event, Exodus 14. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's comparing this event to baptism. And then in Romans chapter six, verses three and four, are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, so we may too walk in newness of life. Baptism is a reminder, not just of this story that God took his people through the sea, but it's our story that God will take us through death. Why? Because he took Jesus through death. This means that when we face death, we do grieve. Death is the last enemy, 1 Corinthians 15 says. Death is not our friend. It is the enemy. So when we face death, we do grieve, but we do not grieve like the rest of the world. Instead, we have hope because this Jesus who was crucified has been raised and he will also bring with him those who belong to him. We will also be raised. So we grieve, but we grieve with hope. When we face death, we also may be afraid. And yet we can also have courage because we will cross through the sea on dry ground. This passage is intended to teach us that the Lord will have victory over death. The second thing that this is designed to teach us is that the Lord will have victory over evil. Now, for us to see this point, okay, we have to do what is called biblical theology. That is, we look at the whole scope of um, of Scripture and what God is doing through pictures, symbols, images, things like that, okay? So uh, if you want an, a resource to help you with this, there's, um, you could get what's called a Dictionary of Biblical Theology, and it'll just help you uh, think about some of these themes, okay? So we're about to go deep into the sea here for a minute, okay? Okay, pun, that was a pun, okay. Um, the sea throughout the Bible becomes a picture of evil and chaos. So the sea is the home to evil sea monsters and sea dragons, which are symbols of evil nations and evil kingdoms and evil rulers. Okay. Now, if this just sounds like super weird fantasy literature, it's the Bible. Okay. Um, so one commentator says it like this. Um, The dragon represents true darkness, the horror of bitter tragedy and violent loss, the face of unbound evil and hatred. The dragon is the monster who assaults life and order, beauty and goodness, light and happiness. He's a beast of chaos who assaults God's creation. In the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel, they compare Egypt and Pharaoh to these evil sea monsters. In Isaiah, this chapter, chapter 14, the passing of the sea, is symbolically compared to God slaying the sea dragon. Now, listen to this, okay? Isaiah chapter 51, verses nine and 10. Wake up, wake up, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Wake up as in days past, as in generations long ago wasn't it you who hacked Rahab to pieces? Rahab is the the name of one of these sea monsters. Wasn't it you who hacked Rahab to pieces, who pierced the sea monster? Now, when is he talking about? When did God hack the sea monster and pierce the sea monster? Verse 10. Wasn't it you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the seabed into a road for the redeemed to pass over. What is Isaiah doing? He's interpreting this text symbolically as not only did God part the sea in history in Exodus 14, but this is a symbol for what God does all the time for his people. He's piercing the sea monster. That is, he's triumphing over the powers of evil. But here's the deal. Pharaoh is not the ultimate dragon. Pharaoh is not the ultimate sea monster that needs to be slain. Instead, Pharaoh is simply a follower a seed, the Bible would say, of the real dragon who needs to be slain. This dragon is named Satan or the devil, the ultimate evil one. Listen to Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1. On that day, the Lord with his relentless, large, strong sword will bring judgment on Leviathan, another name for one of these sea creatures, This Leviathan is the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He will slay the monster that is in the sea. What is he doing? Isaiah is connecting the sea monster to the ancient serpent from Genesis chapter three. And he's saying, God will slay the monster. In the book of Exodus, you might remember that one of the first things that happens when Moses goes before Pharaoh is they throw one of their staffs down and it turns into a serpent. Do you remember that? And then the other people do the same thing and all the magicians of Pharaoh. And then the Lord's staff swallows, it says. It swallows the other serpents. Here's what's interesting. The word serpent there is actually dragon it's a word that can be used interchangeably for serpent or dragon or this monster of the sea and so god is swallowing the other monsters And then he gets through the sea, and after they get to the other side, God's people write a song, and they sing of their salvation and deliverance. And here's what they say in Exodus 15, verse 12. You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. It's the only two times the word swallowed is used. It's a connection. It's saying, look, look, look. The Lord is conquering the evil one. God's salvation in the Exodus is being depicted as a victory over the powers of evil. Evil nations will rise up, but ultimately they will be cast down. Evil dictators will rise up, but ultimately they will be cast down. And this means that the Red Sea, the crossing of the sea, is a foreshadowing of the greater exodus that God accomplishes through his son, Jesus. Think about this. Jesus is in a boat one day and there's a storm on the sea and he calms it. Jesus walks on the sea. Why does he do that? Just because it was a cool miracle? Why wasn't he levitating rocks? That would've been cool. Why is he walking on the sea? Because the sea is a picture of evil. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, talking about Jesus' death on the cross, he says, Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, the powers, and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. God triumphed over those evil forces in Jesus on the cross. This is why in Revelation chapter 12, It's describing how Satan fell to the earth. And it says, Revelation 12, 9, So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. And then, at the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, Jesus returns and it says, he, that's Jesus, seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And then how does the whole story end? Revelation 21, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Does that mean there's no beaches in heaven? (laughs) Or does it mean that when Jesus returns, the ancient dragon who belongs to the sea, the place of evil and chaos, will be slain? When Jesus returns, he will judge evil. And here's what that means for you. When you see evil and you see evildoers prospering, you do not have to be afraid. You do not have to try and get vengeance on your own because vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And so, as the Apostle Paul says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Are you afraid of something today because of what you see? Something around the world or something in your own world? Behold your God. See his salvation. And take heart. Let me pray for you. Father, we praise you for being the Lord, the one who reigns over all things, the one who will have victory over death and evil. God, this was true at the sea. It was true at the cross. It was true Easter Sunday, and it will be true when Jesus returns. So God, would you give us courage for that day? Would we live in light of that day? Would we love our enemies in light of that day? And would we be a beacon of light and hope to the world? That when death and evil surround us, God, we know that someday the sea will be no more. It's in Jesus' name that I ask you to give us this courage. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?